This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to Around the Dial, your one-stop shop for sports talk's best moments every day. Here's your host, CBS Sports Radio's Damon Amendolara. Welcome to Around the Dial, the best in your sports talk for Thursday, January the 24th. I'm your host, D.A., and as we creep closer to Super Bowl 53, all eyes on the coaches. Sean McVay looking for his first ever championship, just a couple of years under his belt as a head coach in general. And here's Bill Belichick looking for his sixth title as a head coach and another two as a defensive coordinator with the Giants, this would make eight rings for Bill Belichick as a coordinator or as a head coach. So when you look at these two guys, the youngest coach in the NFL versus one of the oldest coaches in the NFL, can you draw any parallels? And if you're looking for the next Bill Belichick or Sean McVay, can you simply go out and hire a guy that seems to be like them, cut from the same cloth? Hall of Fame head coach Tony Dungy joined 670 The Score in Chicago with Mike Mulligan and David Haw and discussed the connective tissue between the two coaches in Atlanta this week. Let's listen in. Tony, when you look at the Super Bowl matchup, today is uh, Sean McVay's 33rd birthday. And uh, on the other side of the sidelines wow. is a legend, uh, maybe the best ever, Bill Belichick is 66. They're the youngest coach in the Super Bowl and, the, and probably the oldest one to win it if he wins it. And, and you look at what they – is there any commonality between the way they approach their teams and, and what they do right to be successful? Yes, there is a commonality in the one sense that they're great leaders, uh, number one, and they have uh, everybody on board. And kind of that's what we talk about in the book. There's a lot of ways to do it. But the, the common thread is you have to get everybody who believes and buys into, and they, they both have that. I was out last year. We had the Rams in the playoffs uh, for NBC, and everyone in the building, there was no question who was in charge, and that was Sean McVay. And, yes, he hired a 70-year-old defensive coordinator. He had all kinds of people uh, on the staff, some that he had worked with, some that he hadn't. They had new players. But everyone in that building, hey, Coach McVay says this. Coach McVay does this. We're doing it this way. And he had, was able to create that right away, and that's leadership. And, and Bill Belichick obviously has the same thing. They do it different ways. They're a different generation. Uh, but everyone is on board with how they're going to do it. What's it like for you as a defensive-minded coach, as a guy, you know, you, you were a quarterback back in the day and uh, obviously a safety in your career in the NFL – um, what, what's it like for you to see the change in in the style of football we're looking at, and does that change the way we look at the game in terms of of how, what side of the ball we hire and and how these guys are promoted? No, I think that's one of the big mistakes that owners make. Um, I'm looking for schemes. I'm looking for X's and O's, and that's not what wins. 
Sean McVay is winning because he's a leader and because he has got everybody to buy into what they're doing. And that's what I think owners miss. Uh, in 19, mid-70s, I played for Chuck Knoll. He was a defensive-minded coach. The first two Super Bowls was still Curtin. And Terry Bradshaw threw, I think, 13 passes in the first Super Bowl. Defense was shutting people down. Then in 1978, my second year in the league, they started changing the rules. No more, and it was directed at us. No more bump outside of five yards. No bumps down the field. Can't do this. Take the head slap out. Do everything you can to increase the offense. But what did Coach Noel do? He turned things around, put Swan and Stallworth in the lineup. We're going to throw and take advantage of the rules. Mm-hmm. He was a leader. We believed in him. We won the last two Super Bowls with offense. Uh, and, and so it wasn't, hey, oh, Chuck Noel, he can't coach anymore because we got different rules. Uh, no, he, he would adapt, and, and good coaches do that. Bill Belichick is still winning Super Bowls uh, the, the way the game changes and, and you know may very well win this one. So to say, well, it's got to be an offensive coach, i got to get someone who handles the quarterbacks, no, that's not true. Doug Peterson, Sean McVay, Matt Nagy, these guys are leaders, and that's why they're good. I love that point by Tony Dungy. All of these owners that are trying to chase the next Sean McVay don't chase scheme. Schemes change. Rules change. That's a temporary fix. I'm looking for schemes. I'm looking for X's and O's, and that's not what wins. Sean McVay is winning because he's a leader. Try to find guys that are woven like McVay or Belichick or anybody else as leaders. Look at guys as organizers. Don't look at scheme. Look at guys as leaders of a locker room. I think a very savvy insight when Tony Dungy's talking about hiring practices in the NFL. And yet here we are, owners tripping over themselves, trying to find the next McVay simply based on what offenses look like in that guy's playbook. Ridiculous. The best story of the day comes to us from Trent Dilfer. He won a Super Bowl back in 2000 with the Baltimore Ravens. Of course, now Dilfer is an NFL analyst. And he's got a great story, an interesting story, pretty much a fascinating story, about Bill Belichick's son. And it sounds like Bill Belichick's son is a chip off the old block. Even in the middle of winning, angry enough to fight. Here's Mutton Callahan on WEEI in Boston. The only encounter I had, and I, I understood it, was on the field after um, the game in Atlanta, uh, the game against the Falcons. Uh, I can't remember what city we were in for that Super Bowl with the great comeback and the late win. Um, Bill's son got in my face and was pretty adamant, uh, reminding me, and uh, he must not have heard the thirty thousand apologies that I made and, and owning the, the stupidity of my comments uh, in the media. So that was really the only. Um, grudge, I guess. Um, but I get it. Hey, when I was an athlete, when I was playing, and when people said stupid things about me, I carried it too. I mean, I, I held on to it. I used it as motivation. Uh, I resented those people. Um, and I totally 100% understand it. And I have never run from it because it's part of the job and it's part of what happens. You know, I think the funny thing, though, is people forget the 
the thousands of times I was right about the Patriots saying good things. Uh, we don't that's care. Not, no, that's doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So wait, which son was, was it? Was it the long was hair? It Steve? Yeah, was it long, Steve or Brian? Long hair, yeah. Oh, yeah, I thought he was going to try to punch me in the face. <laughs> he uh, could be a little scary. I mean, were you, yeah. were you afraid you were going to have to drop the gloves? No, no. I, people at the end of the day in the NFL, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of um, conflict at times. But a lot I, of gloating. A lot of gloating. Yeah. As a fraternity in general, I think we all understand um, the level of emotion and the level um, of enthusiasm, both good and bad, that goes into being part of the NFL community, and, and it's part of the deal. Did you fire back at him, or did you just stand there and take it and say, you, you know what, I'll take my medicine? Listen, when you do that, and again, I, I tried to explain this on different shows, you know, I was given information before the game that led to those comments. And I made the comments, and even as I said them, I said, well, that was extreme. You know, there was a better way of saying that. But then you move on to your next gig or whatever. Um, but, you know, when you do something like that, you just have to own it. I mean, there's no hiding from any of it. And you got to understand that those your words matter, uh, especially when you're respected, because a lot of those people in that organization expect uh, respected my uh, analysis most of the time because it was usually thoughtful and usually very pro-patriot and usually not just saying, well, they have the goat and that's why they're good, you know, usually deeper than that. So when you say that those words hurt, so those people that hurt are going to come back at you. And I understand that completely. So it was not just a football take. You would talk to people around the team prior to the game. You sort of, there was a feeling around, not just you watching that game that night, Trent. Yes. And I, I think you have to be a moron not to know that, that there was obviously, you know, with, with their, how successful they had been to that point and still have been, you got to be an idiot to make comments like that without knowledge going in that there was really some issues around the team at that point that they obviously fixed. Um, right. But at the time, you know, if you really, really want to dig into this, go back to, that week, I think it was 2014, and what had happened before and uh, what they had looked like and what was going on, what they had lost in the offseason. And, and my whole stance on this was, and this, this is the one that bothers me, is when people reach out and say, well, you said Tom Brady wasn't good, because that wasn't the point. Tom, the point was that they hadn't done enough around Tom Brady, that he is the greatest that's ever played the position, and he deserved more support. That was the context of those comments. Uh, it was somebody else on ESPN the next day that ripped Tom Brady, and I get blamed for that. I mean, imagine winning the Super Bowl and wanting to fight. Imagine the greatest accomplishment of your life, confetti coming down, and wanting to fight an NFL analyst. I thought he was going to try to punch me in the face. <laughs> he um, could be a little scary. I mean, were you, yeah. were you afraid you were going to have to drop the gloves? That's a guy with a screw loose, and it does not surprise me that that's a Belichick. Nice look for the hoodie clan. Who cares about happiness? Let's throw down. Um, Bill's son got in my face. As we mentioned to you earlier in the week, in Philadelphia, a bombshell report citing multiple players from Philly Voice suggesting that Carson Wentz is not as beloved as we would have thought inside that Eagles locker room. Now, the author of that piece has been taking a lot of heat this week. Eagles players saying there's no truth to the reports. Frank Reich, of course, knows Carson Wentz and Nick Foles in that locker room very well on the staff of the Eagles team that won the Super Bowl one year ago. 
And he told Dan Cilio in 97.3, the fan in San Diego, the report has no merit in his mind. I, I have to get your thoughts on, I think, fake news coming out of Philadelphia. You had an opportunity, obviously, to win a Super Bowl in Philadelphia. You worked around Nick Foles. Obviously, that's an iconic story. But my question would be more with the relationship with Carson Wentz in that locker room. I mean... Look, you know this as well as anybody. The media, there's so many sources out there now. Just your overall thoughts and how that team perceives Carson Wentz and you working with him. I'm not talking about you reflecting on this year, but what he means to that franchise and how great a player he is. And, again, some of those things that people are saying that he's arrogant, he's egotistical. I'd just like to hear your thoughts in on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean – it makes me laugh because having been there two years, having been a part of the process of drafting him there and getting to know him the way that I know him, there's just few, few people in this league that I think more highly of than Carson. Um, I, I know him very, very close. And I'm not just saying this to defend him, but there, and I don't need to defend him. His teammates are doing that quite well. But th- this guy is a, is a humble guy. This guy is a competitor, though. This guy is – he knows what he wants. This guy's a leader. This guy has so much stinking juice, it's unreal. So I can understand how sometimes people are going to perceive things that aren't true. But in this case, he's another one of these elite quarterbacks that what I, I used to be really – he didn't care one thing about stats. Like, at the end of the day, that, that, I love that about him, the two years that I worked with him. At the end of the day, he's not a guy who's checking his stat line because he wants to make sure he's breaking this record. All he wanted to do was win. And ultimately, that's what tells me more than anything else. This guy was a leader. He loved his teammates. Uh, the absolute best. You were part of a football team that went to four straight Super Bowls, and now all of a sudden you're looking at this Patriots team. You guys played them earlier in the year. They're at three now, five and six years. Just tell us how, for you, for a guy that played for Marv Levy, you guys ended up going to all those Super Bowls with that accomplishment. And for the record, I always talk about your Bills team with Jim Kelly. You guys won four AFC championship games. Um, That's for the media to sit there and talk about Super Bowls being beat. But talk about that accomplishment as a player that was involved in something like that. They've done something very unique. I mean, going to four Super Bowls in a row as a player, as you said, was quite an accomplishment. And no one's done that, including the Patriots. But what they've done is at a whole other level with the number of championships they've won. And so I, I just have the greatest respect, respect for Coach Belichick. And um, like everybody else, I mean, this guy, you know, he's he's proven it time after time. Obviously, what Tom Brady has done is second to none. Uh, it's pretty impressive, I got to say, that, that just the consistency of it all and how hard it is to stay on top. It's just it's hard to deal with success, and I give and how they have dealt with continued success is a real tribute to Bill Belichick. Like I said before, I think there's definitely some reason to believe that that report has truth, because who wouldn't be insecure if you're Wentz watching the guy behind you, the guy under you, your backup, take all the glory that you thought was coming your way in a magical season. Now, I'm not saying that that makes him a bad leader. I'm just saying that if this report is about some insecurity about checking down to Zach Ertz all the time or needing to change plays with the offensive coordinator 
or maybe being overly conservative because your knee's not right right now, or maybe just being sensitive about the criticism you'll feel or you're hearing because you're not the Nick Foles Super Bowl winner. I can understand that, but I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Wentz is still a very legitimate starting quarterback in the NFL, maybe one of the best in the NFL when healthy. And if you're the Philadelphia Eagles, you've got to throw the saddle on his back and ride him to see where he takes you in the future. You think the debate is dying down? It comes to the Baseball Hall of Fame vote from earlier in the week? Oh, I think not. Still tons of conversations surrounding who got in and who didn't, specifically who did not. Once again, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens did not even crack 60%, and they need 75% to get in. Greg Brown has been the play-by-play voice of the Pittsburgh Pirates for nearly 25 years. And he joined 93-7, the fan in Pittsburgh, and the PM team. And he says, without Barry Bonds, there's no real Hall of Fame. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. So what do you think, Greg? Should Barry Bonds be in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, I've come around, I think, Andrew, to uh, the idea that he should be. I think it's if, if you're going to have a Hall of Fame and you don't have Bonds in it, you don't have Clemens in it, um, you know, w- w- what's, what's the point? Now, those are two of the greatest players that ever played uh, position-wise and then pitching-wise. So, uh, yeah, and there are a lot of guys, I think, that are in there that uh, under the suspicion anyway of uh, steroids, and uh, you can't prove it. So I might as well put uh, put Bonds in there, put Clemens. Um, Greg, put C-League's in there for crying out loud. He let the whole What's thing happen. Now? C-League's in. If C-League's in, these guys got to be in. He promoted yeah, it. I'm, yeah, I'm, and, and McGuire for that matter. And, and you know, I, I, in terms of the Hall of Fame, I've always believed that uh, I'm not into the numbers crunching and the analytics and all that stuff that's gotten guys like Harold Baines in there and <laughs> you know Mike Messina. Um I'm in the idea that when you're watching a guy play, the eye test, the field test, are you watching a Hall of Famer? Uh, It's pretty simple. And then, you know, if there's a little bit of a gray area and you have to dive into some stats, fine. But it's crazy that, you know, at this point, that Bonds isn't in there now. And believe me, I've I've been no fan of Barry Bonds. Uh, I've been very public about that. But he is, as, as you heard his manager say, one of the greatest players, if not the greatest players, uh, player that ever played the game of baseball. I have always felt, I, I wanted to bounce this specific thing off of you, that these guys being out, Bonds, not Sosa so much, but some of these other guys, was an overcorrection by the BBWAA because they felt like they should have done a better job at policing this all when it first happened. I mean, I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but you, you may uh, you may have a point there, Chris. Um you know that that's that possible that, uh, that that they're trying to make up for uh, the fact that uh, they did turn a blind eye. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm really trying to figure out what what the thinking is now with them and the Veterans Committee. And and I've also listened and read uh, what they have had to say these writers. And there's there there's such a, they're such so inconsistent. 
mm-hmm. uh, with their way of thinking. Uh, who was it? Uh, Buster Olney, I think, actually uh, has given up his vote because he's so unhappy with uh, wow. how the writers have, have handled uh, the, the, the voting process. I don't know what goes into their thinking. I just, for me, if you're going to have a Hall of Fame, like I said, it's, it's pretty simple. And uh, it, it, it shouldn't take as much debate. And you're always going to debate. That's part of the fun of it. But um, if you're going to, again, when, when these guys were playing the game of baseball, I guess to your point, you know, when Mark McGuire was filling out Three River Stadium, uh, we couldn't take our eyes off him, that, that batting practice stuff where he was hitting balls into the 500 level. Mm-hmm. I'm not just uh, we in the media. And it's funny, the writers that have kept them out, him out are those same writers that were watching. He would never miss batting practice when McGuire was hitting. Uh, and, uh, you know, they captivated uh, a nation, not a world, he and Sosa, during that home run race. And um, th- these are the same people that are, that are keeping them out for whatever reason. You're, you, again, you, you, you raise an interesting point. Maybe that's the case. But um, uh, th- those guys were Hall of Famers when they were playing, uh, whether they were on the, the juice or not. I mean, you'd have to imagine in the city of Pittsburgh, Barry Bonds is certainly not one of the most popular players. A guy that left the Pirates to take the riches of the San Francisco Giants and then came back to continually beat them throughout the course of his career. But look, as you know, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, you can't write the history books of the Major League Baseball annals without those guys. And not having them in the Hall of Fame, I think, is kind of ludicrous Obviously, they took steroids. Obviously, they cheated. But why not be able to put them in and just say they were the best of an era that was tainted by PEDs? And they did PEDs. I don't understand why you can't just say it's a museum and not some type of church. But it seems like that at least on the next three years, it's going to be impossible for them to get into the Hall of Fame. So it lands on the desks of the Veterans Committee. And what will the Veterans Committee ultimately decide? Well, Joe Morgan is a Hall of Famer. Joe Morgan played in an era before PEDs. And he wrote a letter, public letter, saying that the Baseball Hall of Fame should not let in known cheaters. So will his peers and his contemporaries ever allow in the Bonses, the Clemens, the A-Rods, and Mannies of the world? Morgan joined the Greg Papa Show on 95.7 The Game in San Francisco. Let's spin the dial over there. I have no axe to grind or whatever because I think, you know, even when I uh, discussed things and sent out that letter last year, a lot of people misinterpreted the letter because, first of all, and I'll tell you this, it was not aimed at Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens. It definitely wasn't. If you read the letter itself and not someone's interpretation, I said that, you know, people who had been tested positive or people who had admitted it, and I purposely said the Mitchell report doesn't convince me of anything. So it did not actually connect to Barry and it didn't connect to Roger Clemens. It connected to some people who had admitted it and some people who had failed tests. So um, it was a little different, you know, and Reggie and I, of course, we've talked about this, but I would like, you know, just to find out, you know, what people's thoughts are because things are changing. There's no doubt about it. And one of the things that made it change was, the board of, you know, you know, I'm vice chairman of the board of the Hall of Fame, and the board of directors decided, you know, a few years ago that there were a lot of guys who were voting who were not even involved in baseball anymore. A lot of older guys who had served their time, but they weren't involved. So what we did is we tried to, you know, 
bring it up to date so that people who are involved in the game, who are covering the game, they get their votes now. And But what happens is that helped a lot of guys because when you find out that a lot of people who are voting now were like 11 years old back in the days when a lot of these guys were playing. So, uh, you know, they don't have any thoughts or any acts to grind. A lot of the older uh, voters did. They said, we don't want, you know, to vote for someone who was suspected or did this. So I think it was, you know, it was a change for the good. I think it helped. And I think it's going to help going forward. You know, a lot of people think that I'm against certain guys, and I am not. I don't have I don't have any axe to grind. You know, to be blunt with you, Barry Bonds was and still one of my favorite players. I mean, he always will be. And I think he's the greatest offensive player that I've ever seen. And I saw all of the great ones, Mays, Mantle, you know, uh, Hank Aaron. I saw all the great players, and no one scared pitchers or the other team like Barry did. Do you believe that Barry Bonds, uh, now that that was his seventh year of eligibility, he has about three years left here, do you believe that he'll make it to Cooperstown as a baseball Hall of Famer within the next three years? I actually thought he would before yesterday. I thought things were going to go forward. I have no idea now uh, because, of you know, I thought he would get a bigger jump yesterday. I thought both he and Roger would get bigger jumps than they did Uh but they did not, so I don't know now. But I really thought he would. Uh, and let's face it, if he doesn't get elected by the uh, baseball writers, he still will have a chance with the uh, era committee. See, this is where I just I don't understand this logic. I can't quite follow it. So Joe Morgan is saying if you've admitted to steroids, you're out. Or if you've tested positive, you're out. But he's okay with Bonds and Clemens being in. To be blunt with you, Barry Bonds was and still one of my favorite players. I mean, he always will be. I mean, Barry Bonds admitted to taking the cream and the clear, and that was found to be a PED. They could not pin him down that he knowingly took steroids, that he knowingly took PEDs, but he only says it was flaxseed oil, even though we know the cream and the clear was not. So he did admit to taking steroids. He did admit to taking PEDs. And honestly, even if you didn't believe that, that he was really taking flaxseed oil, you still think he didn't use? I mean, let's be perfectly honest, though. Those guys were using. This is where all of that logic, I think, keeps hitting dead ends, because there is no logic unless you admit we just don't know what any of these guys were doing. And finally, on a lighter note, this week in the NHL All-Star festivities from San Jose. And they say the 90s are back. Well, officially they are in the NHL because apparently we've got glowing puck coming back. Oh, yeah. Plus, tons of other advanced stats and metrics. Could that make you more inclined to watch the skills competition for the NHL this weekend? Carson Anderson on 97 won the ticket in Detroit. Discuss. NBC will showcase puck and player tracking as part of its broadcast of the skills competition Friday night. And then as the centerpiece of a, and this is important, digital only broadcast of the all-star three on three tournament Saturday night. Now just digital only means when you stream it, you will see this, the in-game broadcast. If you're just watching on television, you won't see it. But if you stream it off NBC Sports app or on your phone or whatever, you will. this will be available. Here's more. With each player and puck fitted with a microchip, the amount of available information could be overwhelming. 
Look for everything from NASCAR-like bubbles over players' heads to skating and shot speeds to ice time and even a small trail behind the puck as NBC takes tracking technology and hockey for a test drive. The NHL privately tested puck and player tracking in two regular season games in Las Vegas earlier this month, but this will be the first time the data is available for public consumption. Much like the glow puck was criticized by purists, there's a danger of overloading fans with too much too fast. So this is a big test for NBC. Kenny Albert, who will call the puck and player tracking heavy telecast, available on the NBC Sports app and online, likens this to the kind of ball tracking technology that has become ubiquitous in golf coverage. The trail line in golf off a tee shot, I don't know anybody would argue it's anything but fantastic. When you when they have that, that ground-level shot behind a guy on his tee shot, yep. And you see the flight of the ball, the the trailing line, with a graphic showing how the ball flight, you know, you can see it move right to left. Draws or fades or goes straight, yeah. It's spectacular. Yeah. And that's what Kenny Albert likens this to. Now, sometimes technology, people don't like it. Like, for instance, everybody loves the yellow line. They introduce that, the yellow line, first down marker. That's a constant. And and people love it. I have no problem with it. But the NBC green zone. Where they change the color of the field so that basically when it was second and six from the line of scrimmage to the first down line, the field was a darker shade of green. I think, again, panned is completely unnecessary and borderline distraction. So I give NBC credit because obviously they're trying something else sure. here. And they're trying all a whole bunch of stuff. Maybe we'll find that the bubbles above the players, you know, tracking how fast they're skating and their total ice time. Might be too much, but maybe they have honed the puck tracking technology to make it better. I mean, when Fox introduced the glow puck, the technology was kind of weak. It was, it would flash every once in a while. We had to get above like 90 miles an hour for it to flash or whatever it was. But the idea of seeing a puck deflected out of the air better would be pretty cool. Like, you know how when a player takes a slap shot and every hey, he scores, and then, you know, so that was deflected out in front, and sometimes you can't tell with the naked eye. With the puck tracking technology, if it's better than it was and not too much, it could look kind of sweet. You know what makes watching hockey far more enjoyable today than it was in 1997? HDTV. Big screen televisions. Flat screens on your wall. It's a way better experience. And so now, yeah, some added stats and some miles per hour speed skating and some MPH on the slap shot and, dare I say, glowing puck. I could get into that. Could look kind of sweet. That's the best of your sports talk for Thursday, January the 24th. We'll see you tomorrow, everyone. Thanks for listening to Around the Dial. Subscribe now for the best daily recap in sports talk on Radio.com or the Radio.com app. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.